0: So when I was here, was it only two weeks ago, (laughs) before Gil's visit, I introduced our new theme for this year, which is the ten parami, these ten beneficial qualities of heart and mind that really support us to metaphorically find firm ground in our lives instead of, as Ajahn Suchita says, being swept away by life's floods. And, of course, here now in Aotearoa, New Zealand, right now, many people have had the devastating experience of literally being swept away by the flooding at the end of January, by the cyclone last week, and now potentially more rain coming through. And I think all of us, even if we weren't immediately directly impacted, we're still coming to terms with the the devastation, the impact of those events. And so I think for most of us right now, there's just a heightened sense of instability, unpredictability, uncertainty, perhaps unquestioning, given all of that. What can we truly trust? What might offer us some reliability and steadiness in the face of these challenges And as always in the Buddha's teachings, the answer is not so much to put our trust in external conditions because no amount of money, of material goods, of physical stuff, of engineering, even of disaster preparedness, it's not always going to save us. It's not ultimately reliable in times of crisis. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, take wise precautions and we protect ourselves and our whanau and our family, our homes as best we can. But for even better protection, we need to cultivate our inner capacities, our inner strengths. So no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, we're able to navigate through them without being overwhelmed, without being swamped, without drowning. And this is where the ten parami come in. They're a checklist of useful inner resources to develop. And they're always helpful in any situation. So I was thinking about this over the last few weeks when we've been hearing a lot about disaster preparedness and this idea of the emergency grab bag. And so in your emergency grab bag, you want things like warm blankets and uh, clothes and first aid kits and non-perishable food and drinking water and so forth. And I thought, well, maybe the 10 parami are like an emergency grab bag for our internal resources that we can reach for them in challenging times. But not only in challenging times, because they're always useful under any circumstances. And one of the aspects of them I appreciate, I think I mentioned this last time, is I actually need the nitty-gritty rub and push and pull rough and tumble of daily life for them to be strengthened. So what's in this emergency grab bag of the 10 parami? It can be helpful for each of us to actually learn what these 10 qualities are in order so that next time you are in a challenging situation, you might think, what do I need here? Or whoa, what needs strengthening here? What's missing? What might need more development? So I like to play just to harness our collective memory, see if we can remember what they are in order. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, we've been through these before. So let's see, anyone remember the first one? That should be easy. No, that's a bit later. No, somebody's... Yes, yes, generosity, dana. The willingness to share and to receive. So the next one I think somebody mentioned. That's a bit not quite in order. That's further on. That's further on. (laughs) What's foundational? (laughs) Impatiently wanting to get to patience. First one is generosity. What's foundational? What's foundational to this whole path of practice? No, that's at the end. You're trying to get ahead of yourself. No. Okay, ethical conduct, non-harming. Look at, all the... Look at all the light bulbs going off. Generosity, ethical conduct. Now we come to one that most people forget, conveniently or not. It starts with R. Renunciation. Yes, renunciation. Thank you. Renunciation. There's a reason most people forget it. Okay, now we get to wisdom. Thank you. Yes. Okay, next one. Number five begins with E. There's a lot of it in the room tonight. Yes, energy. Thank you. Now we get to your one. Patience, number six. Number seven. I'll give you a clue. Mindfulness is not actually in this list, amazingly enough. Neither is that one. This one is to do with speech and action. Close. Truthfulness. Truthfulness. Number eight. May not remember either. It begins with D. De- Close. Determination. But actually, I like de- dedication. That's a good kind of a synonym. Thank you. in different places, and it does... Different places have different words, but they kind of do mean the same Yes, yeah. So that's part of what we'll be exploring, all the different synonyms of facets of these qualities. Now we get to the one that some of you mentioned... Not not quite. Number nine. First we have, yes, metta is number nine, kindness. And then finally, equanimity. So equanimity is almost always at the last in any of these lists. So that's a clue for next time. Well, that's partly what we'll explore, but generally speaking, generosity and ethical conduct are the foundation, the springboard, you could say that all of these different things evolve from. And I'll say more about that tonight, and I'll say more about the interconnection of them as we we move through them. So tonight I'd like to focus more on the first one, which is dana, the Pali word usually translated as generosity. And as I think most of you know dhana is foundational to this whole path of practice and maybe because of that it can be easy to take it for granted and I know for myself when I first started exploring this path I think yeah I put my couple of bucks in the box every night tick got that one done and it wasn't until I went to Thailand and my first teachers introduced me to dana as a parami as a spiritual practice that I started to realize, wow, there is so much more to this exploration. And it's true, on the simplest, most basic level, dana can include offering money, offering material things to help people, to help organizations that are worthy of support. It also includes giving non-material things. And I think in our capitalist-dominated society, we tend not to value that so much, but Giving our time, giving our energy, giving our friendship and moral support. As I said in the meditation, giving ourselves the gift of some peace and quiet, the gift of connection with each other. Even something as simple as a smile can be a form of generosity. So there's the thing given, but then there's also the inner spirit that motivates us that openness of heart and mind. And again, on one level, it's obvious. If we're closed down, (laughs) inward, not, not open and available, we're not able to receive the teachings. We're not able to offer the teachings. So openness of heart and mind, generosity, leads all the way to complete freedom. And on one level, it might seem like, talking about dana is going back to basics, It's really the foundation and the culmination of the path. And I want to mention that dana is not just about putting some money in the box. Because in the way it's come to the West, that's often consciously or unconsciously how it's become reduced. And it's important. I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for dana. This group wouldn't be running if it wasn't for the dana of money and all the volunteer time and energy. So we rely on it for this group to exist. And actually, the English word donation comes from the Pali root dana. So there is this practice of making donations. But tonight I'd like to explore some of the lesser-known aspects of dhana that take it way beyond the realm of just making a financial donation. Now, the Buddha was a very skilled teacher, and he taught a graduated path. And when he was meeting a new group of people for the first time, he didn't dive in and talk about amatar or not-self or how to meditate and to get eighth jhana or you know anything esoteric like that. He always started by talking about generosity. And I think pretty much every culture in the world values generosity. So in a sense, he was on safe ground. And then he talked about ethics, the second parami, non-harming, again, valued pretty universally. And only when he felt people had understood the value of generosity and of non-harming Only then did he start to talk about meditation. Then he started to talk about the practices that deepen tranquility, deepen insight, clarity, ultimately lead to this complete freedom of heart and mind. But the path doesn't stop there because once he sensed that his students had these deeper realizations, he instructed them to go out and to share what they'd learned Quote, for the benefit and welfare of the many. So generosity is the beginning. It's also the ultimate expression of this path. And I sometimes like to reflect how dana, in a way, is the fuel that helps this whole transmission of the teachings. You know, I may have shared this before, but when you think about how are we able to sit here in this hall, in Tamaki Makaurau in 2023, and be tuning in to teachings that were given in northern India 2,600 years ago. It's because people heard what the Buddha said; they valued it, they wanted to share it. They went out, as the Buddha said, and shared it for the welfare of many. People received the teachings; they shared the teachings. And that generosity motivated all of you here to some extent. Many of you volunteer and offer your time and energy to Auckland Insight. And I was given a lot of generosity from my teachers that have supported me to teach here. They speak often about the generosity they receive from their teachers generation after generation all the way back to the time of the Buddha. So we're participating in this flow of dana, of generosity. So, generosity is a spiritual practice. It starts with a simple act of giving. But what transforms it into a spiritual practice is the wisdom aspect of it. And for generosity to be really developed, we need to bring awareness, mindfulness, clarity to every act of giving. Now, I try not to make too many assumptions, but in our mainstream dominant capitalist society, I don't think most of us really think about generosity in that way. We tend to... I don't know too many people without some of these kind of teachings who are really mindful about how they give and how they receive. There's more a tendency to dismiss, to downplay, to ignore acts of generosity... And so cultivating it as a spiritual practice really challenges some of our deeper mainstream conditioning and our attitudes. So there's a discourse where the Buddha invites us to really pay attention to every aspect of giving. Where, when, how, what, to who we're offering generosity. And he offered five guidelines. He says, a person of integrity gives a gift with a sense of conviction. A person of integrity gives a gift attentively. A person of integrity gives a gift in season. A person of integrity gives a gift with an empathetic heart. A person of integrity gives a gift without adversely affecting oneself or others. So there's quite a lot in that. And even that first one, give a gift with a sense of conviction. How often do we do that? You know, especially early on, I'd have this idea oh, I should give. I think, oh, really? Can you really afford it? Or what if they don't like it? Or maybe it's too much, or maybe it's not enough. Maybe I'll just not bother. <laughs> you know, it would be hard to access that place of conviction. But when I started taking this on as a practice, I started, and this came from Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers. He said for a few years he made a, a resolve to, if he had a generous impulse, he would do it. And he would just not listen to all those second guessing voices, he would just go ahead and do it. And so I experimented with that for a while. It really helps. I'd have, a, yeah, just don't, don't get caught up in that, just do it. And sometimes it wasn't as well received as I'd hoped, but most of the time it was because there was that conviction. You've probably had the experience of being given something half-heartedly or with resistance or resentment. It's like, (laughs) ooh, really uncomfortable. And so not wanting to inflict that on someone else, can we find that inner conviction Maybe you've also been fortunate enough to receive a gift from someone who's really happy to be giving you something and they're just full of that enthusiasm. And then you feel like, yeah, you want to receive it because you want to participate in that flow. So the second aspect is to give a gift attentively. And again, this involves mindfulness. Really paying attention. Attention to the other person, getting a sense of what, might they need what might they like what are their preferences don't know if you've ever had this experience but have you ever received a gift from someone that you think knows you and you go what (laughs) what were you thinking like where did that come from or like do you really know me you know and we don't want to again inflict that on other people so there's a kind of an attunement what what would they really like? What would be appropriate? And then, when we give the actual gift, can we give it attentively? So, again, finding the middle way between not, wow, you know, maybe embarrassing them by bringing attention to it, but also not just kind of tossing it down, oh, there you go. <laughs> so, really bringing that kindness and that care to it. And then the actual gift itself, it doesn't matter so much because the quality of the heart that it's given with is really, in some ways, a deeper gift. And this is, in a way, in alignment with the third invitation to gift a gift in season. And again, we need to pay attention to the circumstances. So just a pretty literal example from my own life. One year, was getting towards the end of winter. And I thought, ah, I should just clean out all my drawers and wardrobes. And I pulled out all the winter clothes that I hadn't worn much. And I thought, I'll take them to the charity shop. They'll be happy. I'm giving them this donation. So I took this whole bag full of winter clothes. And then a few days later, I read in the newspaper how charity shops are really burdened when people give gifts out of season because they have to take those clothes and wash them and store them for six months before they have any hope of selling them. And I kind of deluded myself that I was being generous, but really I was just trying to get rid of my stuff (laughs) that I didn't want, and it wasn't true generosity. So knowing, giving a gift in season, again, you know, if it's a gift for a child, for example is it the right age, is it too babyish, or is it the wrong size, and all of that kind of thing. Again, I once bought some really cute little baby booties for a friend's baby. And I bought them because I liked them, and I thought they were really cute. I had no idea that they were for a six-month-old, and this baby was a year, and there's a big difference between a six-month-old baby's feet, and I was oblivious. So again, not really in season, not really attuned. And similar, the fourth aspect giving a gift with an empathetic heart. So we can really look at our motivation. Why are we doing it? Is it out of duty? Is it out of obligation? Do we have an agenda? Do we want to prove something to someone? You know, so many different motivations for giving a gift. I did a very little bit of research on what kind of gifts are the ones that are least favor- favorably received. <laughs> and they were gifts like self-help books, <laughs> fitness equipment, <laughs> weight loss products. <laughs> you know, you can get a sense that they were probably interpreted not surprisingly as some kind of criticism. So you know, maybe it's tempting, but notice what are those unconscious or subconscious motivations. Can we clear them out and find that empathetic heart quality? And again, it's much easier to receive a gift when it's coming from a sense of mutuality. And again, I think, you know, this. Our f- Mainstream society, there is a transactional aspect often to generosity. I'll give you this if you'll give me that, or I'll give you this so you'll like me, or you won't not like me. Or there's so many different coded messages, mixed messages. And you know, with this invitation to look more carefully at our motivation, it doesn't mean it has to be perfect before we give anything. My first teachers in Thailand, you know, they said, don't wait until your generosity is perfected or pure because you might be waiting a long time. <laughs> and in the meantime, it's better to give something with mixed motives than to not give at all. And you can always refine it. So then the last one, giving a gift without, without adversely affecting oneself or others. Here again, I think this brings us into some really deeply conditioned beliefs, some of them coming from more mainstream religious traditions, coming from capitalism, etc. There can be an unconscious assumption that it's somehow better to ignore our own needs and put other people first. And the Buddhist teachings are very radical in not doing that. We're encouraged to soften the distinctions between self and other. And if we're acting generously in ways that are causing suffering, then in the Buddhist understanding, that is not wise generosity. We need to include ourselves equally with everyone else. So again, when I was looking at this, I found uh, reference to a speech by quite a famous Christian leader of a charity, And then the speech that she gave to, I think it was a world body like the UN or something, she told people, give until it hurts. She said this eight times over the course of the speech. And the last time she said, give until it hurts with a smile. And there was something about that for me that there was a kind of masochism in it that I sort of recognized, but also, you know, that's not so much... You know, in the Buddha's understanding, suffering is suffering, whether it's yours or yours or any of us. And we're trying to reduce the net suffering. So again, if we're causing harm through our generosity, we might need to rethink what we're doing. And I wanted to emphasize that, because sometimes when people hear these teachings about as <clears> a <throat> spiritual practice, they can... Assume, well, I'm supposed to give away everything I have, anything that's of any value. And if I'm not doing that or I can't do that, well, it must mean I'm attached and I'm not practicing deeply enough. But this is another example of how we need all 10 of the parami working together. So generosity needs to be supported by wisdom, needs to be supported by kindness to ourselves as well as others, And this can help us find the middle way, the balance between, you could say, foolish generosity on one side and miserliness or stinginess on the other. And so the Buddha was really clear to, we need to consider our own well-being. He said, if you have a little, give a little. If you have a medium amount, give a medium amount. If you have much, give much. So we need to take our (coughs) own uh, well-being into consideration. We need to be generous to ourselves as well as others. And I think many people often find giving, receiving generosity even harder than offering it. There's something in our society that puts so much emphasis on being independent or not having any needs, or not being indebted to anybody in any way. And so to accept something from someone might feel like we're making ourselves inferior or beholden or something. And we even see this in the common ways that people react to being given something. Maybe not so much in New Zealand, but in England, you would give someone something and they'd say, oh, you shouldn't have Like, (laughs) you give them a bunch of flowers. Oh, you shouldn't have. Like, it's a kind of a rejection. Or you thank somebody for giving us something. And they say, oh, it's nothing. And again, there's that kind of dismissal. Oh, don't mention it. It's almost like embarrassing or shameful. And again, this is a really different attitude than what we see in the Buddha's teachings. And it can diminish um, somebody's willingness to be generous. So this has been a real learning edge for me in my own life, because as you know, I've been living on dana for a few years now. And in the beginning, I had very much that conditioning that I should be independent and not need anything. And sometimes people would offer me things that were really generous. And I'd feel this inner cringe, oh, I'm not worthy, or "I'm embarrassed, or fear of being beholden to them. But then I've I had to really take in that that was doing a major disservice to their generosity. It was, in in a way, a kind of a disrespect to not receive what was being offered in the spirit that it was being offered. And so I had to really step up and try to meet those offerings in the spirit that they were being given. And what a relief. (laughs) Then when I wasn't all me and them and I'm not worthy and it's too much... It was just a feeling of a mutual flow, a reciprocal flow of offering and receiving that wasn't personal. And again, this is what these teachings are pointing to. So gratitude is a rare quality. When we first start to practice or train in generosity as a spiritual practice, again, in my own experience, often what we find is that all the times when the opposite comes up, all the ways that we shut down or resist or reject or step away from those opportunities. And often when we look, underlying that is some kind of fear. I'm going to miss out, or there won't be enough, or they don't deserve it, and so on. And that poverty mentality in the mind has a way of becoming self-reinforcing, so I'm guessing maybe some of you have a friend or a kind of a friend who somehow never shows up when it's their turn to offer something or you know, doesn't chip in when, somebody's, when there's an invitation. And over time, people start to pull away and they aren't included in the field of generosity. And that shrinking and contracting, the Buddha said, what the miser fears, it keeps him from giving, is the very danger that comes when he doesn't give. What the miser fears it keeps him from giving is the very danger that comes when he doesn't give. So that kind of holding on, poverty mentality becomes manifest and people don't share and they end up with less. So that's kind of self-reinforcing. It reinforces the sense of someone who lacks, and then it becomes self-perpetuating. So the antidote to that fear I mentioned earlier is in a way to, as in Joseph's example, just do it anyway. Feel the fear, do it anyway. And the more we can do that, the more that grip of the poverty mentality or the lack mind starts to release. And again, in my own experience, the more I can just trust this reciprocal flow of giving and receiving. The small sense of me and mine is released and there's an abundance and gifts and opportunities come from out of left field that I never could have predicted or imagined. So I think that's probably plenty to be going on with. I wanted to really have some time to hear from any of you. How do any of you practice with generosity its challenges, its rewards so thank you for the gift of your kind attention and may we all experience the benefits of practicing offering and receiving generosity okay thank you for listening